Hey, welcome to the Back Yourself Show, where each week I interview the best investors and founders of early stage companies. And I try to uncover their secrets for success so you can take those secrets and back yourself with your own ventures. I'm your host, I'm Tom Ferry. I'm the CEO of Stakester and I'm a first time founder. So I've been through exactly what you've been through. And I've been through that process of not being able to find the answers to some of those key questions you have about your startup. So we're here to try and uncover those. Please like and subscribe. And if you want to get in contact, please drop us a note at pod at stakester.com. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, guys, welcome to the Back Self Show. This week we have on Paddy, who is the founder and creator of Odin. It is changing the way the investments work. It is a people-powered investment platform. Um, he's got a super interesting backstory. Despite what you think from the name, he is Irish, but he doesn't sound Irish. But I'll let him tell that for himself. Paddy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tom. Um, great to, great imagine we're on a first date. Tell me about yourself, where you're from, and what you do. Sure. So I was born in uh, Scunthorpe in 1988 that's north of the m25 south of scotland uh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. okay so good. it's near hull it's about an hour from leeds on the east coast literally no idea where near grimsby is. uh sure north of Not- nottingham about an hour and a half north of nottingham doncaster anyway born there <laughs> my my parents are irish my dad's from dublin my mum's from um antrim northern ireland um got three sisters grew up there um and then i went to university in ireland um, studied Russian and French. Of course. I mean, you look, when, when you're like, what am I going to do at uni? Everyone's like, first choice, French and Russian. Right, right, right. right. What made you do that? So I, I guess I, I wanted to do languages. Um, my parents were pretty open-minded and were always like, just study whatever you like and that you're good at and you, you know, you'll know, you find your, your way that way. Yeah. Um, and I thought it would be useful to do a language that was difficult because it would give me a, a USP in, in the job market afterwards. That's cool. Can you say the Back Yourself Show in Russian? Uh, the Back Yourself Show in Russian? Yeah. Um, back Yourself. Подерживаться Maybe? I don't know. For our I don't Russian know how to audience, say back, back Yourself, actually. For our Russian fans, that's for you. That would be like support yourself, but I don't know. <laughs> um, my Russian's a bit rust, rusty. I can tell. Um, a bit rusky. Ooh. See what I did there? Yeah, nice. Excellent. Um, and yeah, so I studied Russian and French. Um, then I worked for, I worked in the food and drink business for about, about three years. What were you doing? So I started my career at Irish Distillers, which is part of Pono Ricard, which is the second biggest spirits company in the world. So they own Absolute Vodka, Jameson Whiskey, uh, Havana Club. Well, they actually, interesting, they own... 49% of Havana Club, 51% is owned by the Cuban government. Yeah, Very yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, and I worked for them in France. I'd studied French um, on the graduate program doing sort of sales and, and, and marketing. So I was launching a new range of whiskey products in uh, Brittany, which was like the main region where Irish whiskey was was sold in, in France. Um it was sort of like, I guess, a mixture of promotions, sales, marketing. Um, you know, you're working with the local sales team, pushing the sales of the new product. Anyway, eventually they ended up selling that brand a couple of years later. I didn't really enjoy that. I liked the work and I think I quite enjoyed 
the promotional and, and selling aspect of it, but I didn't find it very um, intellectually stimulating. Um, I was always quite academic at school. Like, I, you know, I think when you speak to a lot of entrepreneurial people, they're really smart, but often didn't really like school or didn't uh, enjoy it um, and were interested in doing other things and, you know, selling sweets in the playground when they were like 14. I wasn't that sort of kid. Um, so I, I think I wanted to do something that was a bit more strategic. Um, so I went back to Ireland, ended up um, applying to this master's where they send you to a foreign country and then you have four or five clients who are small and medium Irish businesses who are trying to launch in that market. And then you like help them with their go-to-market strategy. Amazing. There's still a sales element, obviously. Um, uh, help them find um, buyers, help them find distributors, that sort of stuff. So it was a little bit more um, up my street, I guess. And I wanted to go to Russia, uh, improve my Russian, um, meet nice women, of party course. in Moscow, all that yeah, sort amazing. of thing. Uh, which What's the name of that? There's that, awesome. there's that amazing um, bar restaurant. Is it called 60? That's on top of... That there's like a new industrial tradition, like kind of like Canary Wharf, but in Moscow, and it's on the top floor. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Moskva City is yes. the name of the, yeah, the area. They've tried to build like the city of London, sort of. Yeah, I guess. sort of. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's like, I don't think I've been to that restaurant, oh, actually. Amazing. Highly yeah. recommended. Yeah. Next time you're in Russia. Yeah. yeah. I'm going tomorrow. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make yeah. sure you go. Have I a will. good time. Um, so, yeah, I spent a, a year and a half in Russia. And uh, worked for the food board, worked for these like interesting, you know, I had a whiskey brand, I had the dairy board, I had um, a craft beer company. Um, so sort of dealt with their distributors in the market. And then we had other clients who were looking to sell stuff into Russia. So we do like market research reports and that sort of thing. Yeah. I moved from that to another sort of part of the trade department called Enterprise Island that deals with technology and everything non-food related. Um, and I guess that was my first sort of look at like venture. Um, so Enterprise Island has a co-investment fund um, and then we'll invest, we'll invest alongside high potential startups. Um, so they'll do like match funding. If you can raise 500K from angels, they'll give you 500K as well on the same terms. It's a good deal. Yeah, yeah. Still it is going? Good, it is a good deal. Yeah, they've been doing it for a long time. Um, I don't know if that sort of like state-sponsored venture that way i don't know if that's the way it should work i think maybe taxpayer money should be focused more on like radical innovation that vcs won't touch do you know like sure yes like yep. really early stage research in, in groundbreaking stuff and that yeah. sort of thing but you know it i think it's it, you know it's, it's it's not a bad thing um and we were basically trying to poach uh russian startups deep tech startups and bring them to ireland so we'd give them a startup visa we'd say you can reincorporate uh we've got really low corporation tax rates you know we'll we'll help you out and um help you find investors and all that sort of thing um so that was interesting and quite fun that was one part of the job and then the other part of the job was helping irish clients the same just non-food businesses enter enter the market um so so i did that for a little while um and then I, I sort of got itchy feet. I wasn't really happy uh, in the job. I didn't really like working for the government, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I found that a lot of people in government jobs are just nine to fivers, and they're not really uh, very driven or motivated, or you know, making the most really of like 
what you can do in, in, in a position of, of power like that, you know? Yeah. It's so different to the startup world that you're now in where like everyone, like people just work. People just want to work, they work yeah. all day, every day. They love it. Yeah. And I, I think I was always very driven nice. and um, I wasn't getting anything out of that. And I was like, well, I'd quite like to start a company. I'd been spending all this time with like food and drink businesses and yeah, all these so it's like natural progression, right? Yeah. So I started a vodka brand. Yeah. Um, tell me about this. So how do you, how do you start a vodka brand? So um, basically, the ruble crashed in Russia. You know, looking back on this now, I think as is always the case with like your first business. Not always the case, but it's definitely my case. I made a ton of mistakes, made a ton of stupid assumptions, and like ultimately should never have built that business but you know um you don't get to where you are but without doing that sort of stuff i don't think um so um the ruble had crashed so it was really cheap to manufacture goods in russia so i was like what does russia have that uh, people want externally where i can like you know there's just an arbitrage there right i can sell at high value and buy at low value i was like well vodka you know craft gin was becoming a thing people were getting into like whiskey and rum and like people are drinking quality more than quantity i think we've seen that shift happen a lot in the drinks business more recently um so i thought can i do like an artisanal vodka so i uh, had met a bunch of people through my work with this whiskey brand in the drinks business in russia and um sort of basically uh, we tasted a load of different vodkas from different distilleries in the country and then found one. I did some blind tasting and found one that uh, people thought was good. And then I contacted that distillery, uh, which is in a place called Vladimir. 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 That's about an hour and a half from Moscow. Is it named train. after Mr. Putin? <laughs> uh, unfortunately not, although he'd, he'd probably love that. Um but uh, yeah, so we traveled there. Um, I had a business partner called Eager, uh, who, I, who, who we ended up going our separate ways, but he sort of helped out with things a little bit and um, knew how to navigate the system over there, right? Sure, which is unique. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we rocked up at this distillery in Vladimir and, and told them we wanted to make 2,000 bottles of premium vodka. And I had a brand designed and, you know, the label and I'd contacted label developers in Russia and that sort of thing. And, you know, you just sort of put it together and think, right, will this happen? And then I um, I needed to figure out if there was demand for this as well, right? So I set up a website, um, did like a mock-up bottle with water in it um, and then did an Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign. So you didn't, you didn't even have the product? No. You're like, no. I'm going to make it? Yeah, 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 yeah. What's the name of the brand? Ishka. Ishka. Ishka, I-S-H-K-A. What does, that, what does that mean? Well, it actually means water in Irish. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. it's an Irish name? Yeah. Well, vodka comes from the Russian. So vada is water in Russian. Vodka is like a little water. And then ishka is the root of the word whiskey. Ishka baha means the water of life. And that's... Um, that's, oh, wow. that's whiskey. So it's all the same thing, really, right? Okay, so Ishka, nice. But it's just a cute, it's just a cute word. Hey, mate, I'm in. I um, like it. So you're like, okay, and you're so, like, so you... so did the crowdfunding campaign? How much you raised? Um, eleven thousand pounds. That sounds like a lot of money for a bottle of water. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you've done well. So, so, so we did that, and then um, and I've broken the Indiegogo rules on the promotion of alcoholic products. 
And I only found this out after, after the fundraise. So it was in the small, small print that you couldn't give. You could raise money for a drinks business, but you couldn't give uh, it's, it's, You couldn't give a drink as a reward, but you could give a coupon that was redeemable for a drink. But I'd put the drink as the reward, right? The oh, bottle rather right. than a, a 35 pound coupon Paddy. redeemable for a bottle, right? The moral of this story, so read the, moral, the small read print. The small print yeah. And attention to detail, I think is, is one of the things it, it taught me because I, I definitely am someone to gloss over things. And I think um, it's quite common in entrepreneurial people because they want to like move fast. They should care about pace. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and you, you do fuck things up along the way. But yeah, I, I think it's, it's taught me to be a little bit more careful about things sometimes. Um, so we they took all the money back, but I had like all these people who didn't get the email and were still expecting a bottle of vodka and that sort of thing. Oh, so it was no. a bit of a nightmare. Anyway, we launched a new website and did a crowdfunding campaign ourselves on our own website because I was like, actually, you not you don't need to be regulated to like pre-sell product, right? No. Um, sold about three and a half thousand pounds worth. Um, maybe 4,000. So that like helped fund the first order. Um, we manufactured 2,000 bottles. Man, shipping products from Russia to the UK is an absolute nightmare. I can imagine. Um, and meanwhile, you know, I incorporated in the UK. You need to get licensed and that sort of thing. Um, you need, you know, there's, you know you're a drinks business. So you need it sounds complicated. Yeah, it's, it's relatively complicated. I mean, it's not, I, I wrote a blog piece on this Um I can share. Um, you know, you can do it all. You can set up a drinks business and start a drinks brand for about 10 grand. It's not that difficult. There's tons of gym brands around now. Um, anyway, yeah, manufactured it, got it over to the UK, arrived in the UK. Uh, so I moved back from Russia um, and had all my sort of supply chain set up. And then I was like, right, I just need to sell this stuff, basically. Um that was much harder than I thought it was going to be. So like, it was like going around bars, door to door, you know, selling, selling, selling. Um, obviously we had a nice story around it and that sort of thing, but yeah, it wasn't making any, any money and decided, right, I'm going to do this on the side, try and sell a bit online, selling a few bars. We, we ended up with a few distributors. We were ticking away, you know, doing, you know, 50, hundred bottles a month here, 200 bottles a month there, that sort of thing. Um, but I needed a job. And I got interested in in the crowdfunding thing. And then I applied for a job at Crowdcube. Oh, nice. Um, Recently merged with Cedars. Yes, they did. Yeah, yeah, The back yeah. of a fag packet, good or bad? Um, I think it will be good for the industry and it will be good for their businesses. Um, neither of them, as far as I know, will be profitable this year. But the main reason those companies aren't profitable is that they're, they're like racing to the bottom on, on fees. Um, so I think if they merge, they'll be able to profit if they can reach profitability they'll be able to do a lot more for investors and uh the ecosystem in terms of uh the sorts of businesses they promote and that sort of thing because when you're like really pressed for cash and your business model is brokerage you've just got to put as much stuff on the platform as as possible um and maybe that will maybe that will change a bit now uh maybe the quality will improve a little bit um Maybe they'll be able to control valuations and that sort of stuff a little bit more if they choose to. Yeah. Um, what are they going to call it? I have no idea. I have no idea. I'm so excited to find out. Creeders. Nice. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. Don't you think they'll just call it Crowdcube or Cedars? Like they've got pretty good, like strong brands. Yeah. So... I wanted them to call it the Square Tree. Yeah. 
It's what I was hoping for. But um, I don't think they're going to take my idea. Yeah, I, yeah, I think I, yeah. I think I tweeted that at Luke Lang. You um, should, uh, you should, you should, uh, you should squat on that domain, man. The square think, tree. Yeah, yeah, Let, me right Let me do it right now. Let me do it right now. All right. So okay. So you went. Did you go and work CrowdCube? I worked at CrowdCube then for two years. What did you do? Uh, sales. Oh, nice. So business development started. Um, on, on the BD team, um, then I was like senior BD, which is the same. It's really just a title change. And then uh, they moved the team, shuffled the team around a little bit. And I ran a small team for sort of the last six months of my job there, uh, focused on inbound. So you get a ton of entrepreneurs like signing up to these websites and um, a lot of noise, um, but also some really interesting, good quality stuff comes through. Especially because some of the busiest, busiest founders don't really want to like reach out, email you, blah, blah, blah. They're just like, yep, yeah, sign up. Here's my deck. Um, I want to raise money. Ring me, right? So we were sort of dealing with that side of things. And um, yeah, it was, it was really interesting. I learned so much. I spoke to so many entrepreneurs at um, Crowdcube and, you know, networked so much. And we were really serving founders, like not serving investors really at all. Like if you look at, what Cedars and Crowdcube are doing, it's about um, helping founders raise money. It's not about uh, serving up uh, really high quality in investment opportunities to um, investors. That's not really their mission, right? Like they're, they're, they're there to help anyone raise money because, you know, it's something we discussed earlier, like especially if you're not from the right background or it's not the right type of business for to be venture scale, um, you know, people aren't going to invest uh, in your company, but there are a lot of great companies out there who, um, you know, might turn into sort of a five or 10 million solid business and need a bit of money to get there. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was a really interesting experience. Um, learned a lot. You look at a lot of pitch decks, you see a lot of people pitching. Uh, you, you see, you start to see very quickly uh, within, I think, the thing you don't get as a founder is you're so focused on your own thing that you don't uh, learn to see your weak spots. Um, What's a common weak spot that you see? Like blind belief in what you're doing. Um, I had that, you know. Uh, when I started that vodka brand, I thought, oh, we're going to, you know, this is going to be so easy. We'll be able to sell so easily. And it was much harder than I, than I thought when, 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 uh, when it came to it. Um, so yeah, you see a lot of that. You see a lot of, it's actually something that um, I think David Fogel mentioned on the podcast before, which was um, people being like, oh, I, I, this is my big vision, but I need the money to do it. And it's very like, uh, you've got to find a way to hustle your way there because like that's what makes people excited to invest in you, right? So to me, the worst thing you can ever say to a investor, my belief is, if this, then that. You know, yeah. If you give me this, then I'll do that. Yeah. It should always be, I'm doing this. I want to do it quicker and yeah. bigger. Yeah, yep, yeah. That's why I'm taking money. Not to do something new, yeah. to take what I'm doing already and make it better and yeah. faster. Yeah, money's fuel, not the engine, right? That's a great way to describe it. Yeah, 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 yeah. In the current climate, marketing is hard. But do you know what isn't hard? 
making sure you never miss an episode of your favourite podcast. So tap the follow button on your podcast and you'll never miss out on the latest episodes of Unicorny or Marketing Difference. You can even go back and listen to our back catalogue of amazing episodes. If you do that, please leave us a review. It would mean so much. So, so yeah. Oh, okay. So we Go have gone slightly, well, I haven't gone over, but I want to move on to the magic, mm. right? You saw a problem in the world, okay? Mm. Which led to you creating Odin, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. Solid name. Thank yeah. you. Um, how did you, what was the problem you saw? Right, yeah, good question. So I, I, I sort of middle last year, I managed to sell the vodka company. Didn't really make any money, but you know, I'd been sort of chipping away, had built some distributors and stuff like that. And then um, a very successful entrepreneur approached me and was basically like, my wife wants to start a vodka brand. Can I just buy your company? And you're like, and I was like, of course. Yeah, of course, yeah. (laughs) Phew, right? Like, uh, offload that. Um, And- uh, So you're an exited founder? Yeah. I wouldn't say that. Um, I don't count that one. Um, And uh, at Crowdcube, I I was always sort of pushing like, we need to be more investor focused. And, uh, you know, we need to think about how we can uh, serve investors as well as founders. And I I, I thought some of the stuff on Crowdcube was a bit problematic, right? Like um, investors churn a lot on that platform. Um, The model is brokerage. So you're like constantly finding new deals. Um, so you're not building any like sustainable recurring sources of revenue really. Um, and, um, valuations are quite high. Um, deal quality is not as good as you would see elsewhere in the market. So it's like, you know, if if you're, and I don't think it's necessarily like, and, and I, I need to be careful. I don't want to criticize my, my former employers and like they're amazing people. And I think, you know, Luke and Daz are amazing founders and it's a wonderful company to work at. Highly, highly recommend it. And especially for consumer businesses like equity crowdfunding, it, it can be a game changer for you, for your company, right? Like look at what Monzo have done. You look at what BrewDog have done. Like there is real power in getting like an yeah. army Revolute, of advocates. Coconut. Right, right, right. right. I invested in Coconut. I invested in Free Trade as well. well Sam, Sam was on the show. Oh yeah, 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 I saw that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I think I like bumped into him once, but I've never really spoken. Great to him. guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard, I've heard very good things. I often text him by mistake when I mean to text my brother, who's called Sam. Oh right. So he misses out. <laughs> <laughs> um. So. Uh, yeah, I thought, is there a way to do this that's like um, leveraging some other uh, benefits of like crowd, right? So I was quite interested in this idea of like crowd intelligence and crowd sourcing of of things. Um, and it it always struck me that it was like an opportunity to do something that sits between what Crowdcube is doing and what like traditional VC is, right? All the VCs we spoke to, unless they were younger and a bit more forward thinking, they'd often be like a oh, Crowdcube, like uh, whatever you guys are like, you know, the, the Mickey Mouse of, of um, the venture world, right? So I left and I was chipping away on a few ideas. I was like, could you use... So I was really interested in what this business Circle Up were doing in the US. So... Uh, again, it's consumer goods. So I had like sort of a background. They started out as a consumer goods crowdfunding platform founded by some private equity guys from consumer. So a slightly different approach, much more due diligence on the on the deals and, and that sort of thing. And they'd sort of gradually pivoted and ended up becoming like a fund. 
And they basically collected a shitload of data on every consumer goods business in the US. And then they were tracking, you know, your Instagram, your, your web traffic, your Amazon ratings, your listings uh, in, in, you know, Costco and Whole Foods and whatever. They knew what, uh, how many stores you were in, what your th uh, throughput was in those stores, because all that data is available, right? And then they could basically model that brand's going to be successful in two years time. And they could tell that much better than um, any of the consumer goods private equity firms could. What they do in consumer goods in private equity is they wait for the business to get to sort of 10 million turnover, really, maybe 5 million pounds, $10 million. And then it's like, okay, this is an interesting opportunity because you can start to you know, leverage your investment and, 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 and that's when you can sort of make it work. Before that, you know, the barriers to entry on consumer goods have really plummeted in terms of producing those products. So it's like very competitive. There's no network effects. Your only defensibility is brand and scale. So it's, it's risky to invest, right? But what CircleUp were saying was like, well, we can spot investments earlier and better using data. So I was like, that's super interesting. So I was sort of chipping away on that as an idea um, and, and looking at raising like a consumer goods fund to do that. Um, maybe a little bit naively, naively, right? Like I'm going to leave and raise a fund. But, uh, you know, I'd sort of decided at this point, I like investing actually more than I like um operating or running or you know being a founder um i guess because um uh, i like thinking and i like reading um i don't love selling that much to be honest mm. uh, i'm not bad at it but i don't think it comes naturally to me sure um so yeah sort of working on that i was like right i need a bit of work so really luckily uh, networks so tom smith who i work with at crowdcube lovely guy uh, was friendly with a guy called Jeremy Bassett, who used to work for Unilever and was doing some consulting for Coca-Cola on the setup of their corporate venture and introed me to Jeremy to talk about the fund idea. And then he was like, actually, we're, we need someone to like, uh, I want someone to work on the, the Coca-Cola stuff for me. Do you want to come on board as a part-time consultant? So I started doing that. And then that turned into a full-time role. And I was basically helping set up CCEP's CCP's Coca-Cola European partner. So like their sort of operating model for their corporate venture arm. So they'd been established in like February, 2019, but it all been pretty like, you know, ad hoc as it often yeah, is sure. at the beginning of, with these things. So corporate venture, it tends to spin out of the M&A department um, or the corporate development department. Sure. Um, and you get basically the way it works in corporate venture is you get the sign off from the CFO or the CEO who are like, yes, we think you should start investing in small businesses in our ecosystem. And if you get that, then, you know, you can, you can go and start cutting a, a few checks because you've got to remember to these guys, like putting 500 grand or a million into a business is like pocket change, right? They're, they might be spending that much on consultants in a day. Um, so they'd made like three or four investments. They didn't really have like a system in place, right? They didn't have like, uh, a very good CRM. They didn't have like a proper deal flow pipeline. They hadn't really built out their network. Um, you know, they were paying a lot of money to scouting companies to like do scouting for them, which is something any VC would be like, are you mad? <laughs> like people should be, you know, coming to you, you should be getting referrals from your network, that sort of thing. Um, and they didn't really have like, I think because it was a question of bandwidth, right? Because it's like the head of corporate development, uh, who's a VP, who's got a whole lot of other stuff on his plate. And then one person running the ventures team who's trying to pull everything together. 
So they needed someone to be like sort of the operations person and put together the model, um, sort of help write out the investment thesis, um, set up the CRM, um, build up the deal flow pipeline. Um, so it was a good experience for me because it was like building a VC firm from scratch almost, right? Building out their network. Amazing. Uh, launching their website. Um setting up uh, the investment process, investment committee, all of that sort of thing. None of that was really set up. Amazing. Um, building the internal network in the company, um, you know, getting deal flow from, from people in the company. Um, and the thesis was actually not about investing in drinks brands at all. Uh, all right. so they, That's a surprise. Yeah. Well, so they're a bottler, right? So Coke's a franchise. Um, so they're the biggest bottling uh, franchisee of the Coca-Cola company. Coca-Cola is a really interesting business to look at because they've actually got very few assets for a consumer goods company of their size because they basically outsource everything. So it's all to do with how the, the product was first invented. You know, it was like a medicinal syrup that you added fizzy water to. Um, and when the guy first invented it, he realized, okay, if I want to expand fast, it's, it's cheaper for me to send barrels of the syrup from Atlanta to... California, New York, Chicago, Detroit, wherever, than it is for me to bottle yeah, the product yeah. and send it out. So he uh, found a bottling partner in each uh, state and um, they had their own independent company, their own machinery, all that sort of thing. And you just pay Coke a license to use the brand. Yeah. So they got super high margin business, right? Like 80% you know, gross margin or something like that. Um and uh, CCP formed as like a merger of a bunch of uh, European bottlers. Um, so what they're thinking, I, I guess, is like, okay, how's technology going to affect us? And, you know, in a world where everything that sits between the brand owner and the consumer in consumer goods is sort of being eaten by software, like what do we become, right? Like, because we're a business in a way that sits between the brand owner and, and the consumer. Obviously, we're bottling the product. Um, but, you know, eventually it might be more cost-effective long-term to bottle the product at the point of consumption, right? So sort of upstream, they were looking at uh, plastic and, you know, getting rid of plastic, recycling more plastic, uh, seeing if you can get the product out of the bottle altogether. Um, a little bit like what what... Soda Stream do. Yeah, sure. So PepsiCo acquired Soda Stream. That's created a lot of pressure in the drinks industry where people want to uh, figure out a way to build their own Soda Stream because they've sort of rec recognized that PepsiCo's strategy there is to shift to like a beverages as a service model, right? Got it. Yeah, nice. So, you know, you supply the fizzy water and then all the flavoring is just like uh, a layer on top of that. Um which is sort of that original Coca-Cola model in a way, right? We just sell you the flavor. Yeah. Um, so they, they look at that and then downstream, they're looking at stuff that's really software that sits between brand owners and consumers and it's in you know one of three categories. So, um, so upstream, it's sort of like sustainability, I guess you would call that vertical. Then downstream, it's like um, route to market. So like how is accessing the consumer gonna change? Um, direct consumer is becoming more prevalent even in drinks brands right so if you look at like ugly or dashwater those guys they'll be doing like up to 50 percent of their sales online especially at the moment yeah um 
And then there's also stuff like, uh, if you look at the way that industry works, there's, there's wholesalers and then the wholesalers sell it to, you know, uh, the, the individual little shops and you know there's there's lots of sort of intermediary steps and really all you've got in the middle is like storage and moving stuff right so like everything else you should in future be able to do with with software right so they made an investment earlier this year in a company called Starstock which is like a B2B e-commerce platform basically there's a lot of them springing up there's a couple of big ones in the UK so there's Recce who do um, sort of stuff that's more targeted at chefs Um and there is uh, there's a really big one in Germany. I can't remember the name. Um, so there's that route to market channel. Then there's data. Uh, one of the things when you work in a large corporate business is you see that like um, they have a lot of data that they're not leveraging, and um, their data strategies aren't always that um, advanced is maybe the wrong word, but like uh, sophisticated. Sure. Yeah. Because, you know, they haven't um, really needed to, right? Like if you're a big consumer goods business, the way you won until about 15 years ago was you just bought all the shelf space in retail. So you were basically a B2B business. Yes. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, you just dealt with retailers, bought all the shelf space and locked out your competitors. Uh, but you can't monopolize the internet. You can't monopolize shelf space on the internet. It's a good point. So, so um, you need to figure out new ways of like getting edge. Um, so, you know, understanding more about where your products are in the supply chain, who's buying them, why they're buying them, how frequently they're buying them is all stuff that allows you to to, to sell more at higher margin. Um, so that's what they call sort of sales visibility and data, and that was that was one one vertical. Um, and then the final one, so you had sustainability, route to market. Sales visibility was another sales one, customer experience. Okay. So how do we help people in our ecosystem to sell consumer goods products, i.e. Coca-Cola, more efficiently, more sustainably, Ish. more effectively? So that might be stuff like POS software for a restaurant, right? Like um, uh, if, if there's, you know, a POS startup that's like growing like wildfire and we back them, then um, we have the ability to, to sort of piggyback on their sales. They have the ability to piggyback on our sales. So there's like a mutual benefit. The question, it was very strategic. So it's very unlike, so corporate venture is, uh, financial VCs often don't really like co corporate VCs and um, don't want them in a deal um, because the corporate VCs might put in like tricky terms, you know, rights of first refusal. Yeah, sure. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know, that basically means like they can say no if someone else wants to to buy you, um, which is really off-putting for buyers. It means they won't make a bid. It's also really off-putting for like future investors in future rounds because mm. um, they also won't make a bid because they think, how are we going to exit this company? Um, so we were very strategic, um, meaning the question is always more, okay, how is this product going to help us sell more Coca-Cola more efficiently, more sustainably, um, and what do they need from us? Like, uh, can we help them get to their goals, but also reach this goal for for, for ourselves? Which is a bit tricky, right? Because it's sort of like, well, why don't you just leave those businesses and then buy them at a later date? Um, which is an argument that's made by a lot of VCs, actually, right? Like, there's a very famous interview with who's the guy who runs Union Square Ventures? Don't know. Really famous guy. 
Um, yeah, we can't. Neither of us can remember his name. Right. <laughs> Fred something, I think. Um, he, he runs that avc.com. Abc.com. That's a good. That's a good. Yeah, uh, yeah. Great, great URL. He's done well. He's been blogging for years. Um, anyway, he basically is like, I don't think corporates should be in venture at all. But the, it's really interesting. There's some, you know, there's some interesting instances of it really working. So, I'll like, um, you Google. Know, General Motors, I think, um, took investment from a plastics company. I can't remember the name of the company. But the plastics company saw this like little car startup in the early 20th century. We're like they're doing really well. We're going to invest, and then all Boom. of their seats are, you know, the plastic from that plastic company and that Amazing. sort of thing. So yeah, I so did how that. did that, how did that lead into Odin? Right, yeah, good question. So I was sort of chipping away on the side on this data idea yep. that I mentioned. Yeah. Um, but I'm not technical um, and I needed a co-founder. So I, um, I mean, you don't need a co-founder in these situations, right? You could pay someone, but I, I'm a big believer in like, depending on what you're building um, it, and especially if you don't know anything about it, um, you need someone with skin in the game um, who does know stuff yeah, about sure. it. So I, I, I tried working with my friend Ronan, who's running a great business now that's like a language learning community in Germany. Um, he wasn't really the right the right fit. Um, and then I met Mary, who's my co-founder at Odin now, um, at a party in like December last year through our friend Nina. Um, and we'd sort of been bouncing ideas around. It was interesting because she had been through Entrepreneur First. She like built a dating app but she was interested in this idea of like algorithmic matching of things right it's sort of the same problem in a way yeah very much so yeah. like matching founders and investors yeah. versus matching you know uh people you know it's 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 matchmaking um so at first we were like could we do like a tinder for startups right amazing um I thought it was a good idea, man. Mary's like, that's a shit idea, mate. Mary. <laughs> Sorry, did I just kick the camera with anger? <laughs> um, and uh, we, we sort of dismissed that quite quickly. Interestingly, um, if you look at Kima Ventures, um, which is a French VC, um, well, it's actually it's the family office of a guy called Xavier Nell who is one of the most famous uh, French entrepreneurs, founded a very big um, telecoms business. Um, they have like a Tinder for startups. So they scrape like product hunt a load of different places, show themselves the deals and they're like, no, no, no. Yeah, that looks interesting. But I think it's a good internal tool. I don't know if people use it externally. Basically, we cycled through a few ideas. We started out building this scraping stuff. So we built a, a really nice web scraper um, where it's like you drop in a URL and it'll instantly tell you like a ton of stuff about that business, like um, you know the, the founders' backgrounds, um, and we are releasing this on, on on the platform soon. The founders' backgrounds, um, how many employees they've got, employee growth. It starts then tracking employee growth rate, um, web traffic, um, Instagram following, engagement. A bunch of it's more useful for consumer media mentions. Um, and, you know, our idea was, okay, we do that and then we'll be able to identify signals and then we can just sell the signals to investors like a, like a SaaS product. Um, the challenge we had with it was at the beginning, you have to get the URLs from somewhere and like scraping the internet 
for URLs is really tricky because it's very easy for a human to be like, that's a sparkling water company um, and yes. this is their website yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is their company's house, right? Classic but like training a machine yeah. to do that is like actually a pretty difficult problem. Yeah. Um, and actually like, and we were like, and Mary's very good at this. She's like, is there just an easier way to solve this problem? Why are we, why are we trying to do it the, the hard way, right? Um, and we were like, well, let's get a community of people together and, and get them to share opportunities. I'd noticed at Coke, a lot of the good opportunities were coming from founders in my network. And, um, and I was also skeptical. I've always been a bit skeptical of like VC's ability to pick winners. Like I don't, you know, you said earlier, like 85% of them are, are failures, right? Like I think there's so much uncertainty at this stage that like anyone who's a good business person, in my opinion, can, can be taught to do the things that you need to do to identify good investment opportunities. I don't think it's like a unique skill that sure. VCs have. Um, and I, I also sort of am of the opinion that everyone knows who the good opportunities are in venture. It's more about like accessing them. And, and you know, that's more about like what you have as a brand. And, you know, um, I wrote a piece about this that was like, um, you know, I think it's more about marketing than, it's than great finance. Piece. It's a great piece. Um, and... So, so our idea was, okay, let's put a community of people together who are like founders we like, people who are just interested in this idea and like crowdsource the deal flow, um, get the crowd to like vet it um, and then sell that information to the investors. Um, it was interesting, right? Like some people loved it. A lot of founders loved it. I loved it. Um, I'm a fan. I've got it on my LinkedIn. <laughs> it's, 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 it's coming back. It's coming back in, in a new version uh, we, we removed all the founders from the Slack community and we've had like a lot of... Uh... Pure outrage. <laughs> Pure outrage. I've we've had a lot of beef about that, man. Um, so we are starting a new founder community. Anyway, I'll come on to this. So um, yeah, we, we were sort of trying crowdsourcing and some of that worked, some of it didn't. Investors, a lot of investors don't really trust the opinion of, of, of other people unless they're credible, right? It's a shame. But I've read quite a bit about crowdsourcing collective intelligence. I'd spoken mm. to a professor at Leeds University and we basically, our, our thesis was like, well, if we get all the people together, get their opinions, get them to rate the businesses, the ones that are top rated will be on average good opportunities. What we've moved to now is basically, well, all these people are doing work so we should reward them somehow. Why don't we raise a fund from all of the, the people, the members, right? And then you get this sort of, community of people who are sourcing the opportunities uh, vetting the opportunities we're enriching that with the data from our scraping product that we built earlier um and then using that to make investment decisions basically. i think that's amazing uh, and that's that's essentially where we've got to so we're in talks with a couple of family offices to um sort of anchor the fund um but i really want it to be about like um everyone being involved i think you know the the big opportunity that is like the gap in venture right now for me is like uh, an actual network vc like actually all the people in the network are part of it they're uh, contributing they've got skin in the game um and then you know what can happen off the back of that i think is like if you imagine this sort of army of like founder investors or we say creators right because there's like founders there's people who are devs there's people who are like vp level at, um 
larger tech companies. There's a whole load of people in there. Um, but we think if we get them all together in one place and then back businesses together, we can put a lot more than money behind those businesses. Yeah. Right? Um, like a ton of support, like great coaching advice. Oh, you want to talk about gaming? You should talk to Tom. Like he, he's your guy for that. Oh, and he can get you on his his platform or his podcast. You know, there's there's, there's this sort of like virtuous circle with that yeah, stuff. Yeah, sure. And you know, we spoke earlier about like how many VCs aren't very nice. <laughs> um, there is a percentage. There's and there's a percentage, right? And yeah. I, I think there's something to just being like much more a community-driven VC and, and much more of a, a people-driven um VC. And I guess, you know, long term where we think this could go is something called like a decentralized autonomous organization, which is where all the oh, people literally rolling off the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> which is so these things have been done before in the crypto world. I don't, I don't want to go like down the crypto route now because it's too complicated and it doesn't make sense to people. But, you know, theoretically, if you're really good at finding gaming deals and vetting them and uh, the ones that you think are likely to be winners uh, uh, more often than average winners, then you should be rewarded additionally in some way for that, right? Like you should get like a carry share or something like that. So we'd like to get to that. Right now, that's too complicated. It's just going to be an EIS fund, basically, anchored by a couple of larger LPs who may not be may not be EIS investors. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we're, we're going to start fundraising once I've drawn up all the investment documents. Um, so that should be, yeah, later this year. Well, look, I wish you every bit of luck. I mean, I, I think what you do is amazing. I think, you know, some kind of, um, I love that you brought those worlds together from the CVC and the crowdfunding and so forth. I think what you're doing is really important. I think it's really good. I think as, a, as someone who is a founder, an investor and someone who speaks to a lot of VCs and is connected to the community, I think having something which is democratized, I think mm-hmm. is what I'm looking for, something where I can, um, I can, you care about access to deals. Yeah, and also, yeah. and as a founder, you care about access to funds and expertise. Yeah. And so having somewhere where you can see a great deal and have someone else tell you if it's a good deal as well and have that extra yeah. expertise and yeah. insight there, as well as on the other side of it, being a founder and having someone vet it for me, I just put in my URL, I tell you the details of what I'm raising and I've got a huge community of people available to me. That's the dream. Yeah. Yeah. Anything, it's a lot of work for founders, right? Anything so that can speed up investment. Yeah. And also make sure them getting the right investors. Yeah. High five from me. So yeah, I mean, we'd love to get it to a stage where like all the investors are on our platform as well. You know, I, I don't think proprietary deal flow is a thing really anymore. I think um, everything's on the internet. So we should just put it in one place and That's make ready. it easier for founders. And I think if we can do that, then yeah, um, great. that'll be a good thing. Thanks for coming up on the show. Much appreciated. Thank you.